Okay, so this morning we will continue on in our study of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We've been going verse by verse through this book for several weeks now, but we're getting through it pretty quickly. So we now come to chapter 20 this morning, so you can open up your Bibles there. Last week... Last week we studied uh, chapter 19, where in chapter 19 we saw where the tribulation has come to an end. So we've been studying uh, the tribulation for quite some weeks now as well, for several weeks now. But in chapter 19 there we saw where it, uh, the tribulation comes to an end. And I want to give you just a three-minute kind of summary here of what we studied last week. And I'm going to use all the scriptures from chapter 19, but I'm kind of skimming through them just to give you a summary of what we studied last week before we move on in to chapter 20. So there was a, a John said in this vision that he received from Jesus Christ, and as he writes this down in Revelation. He says in there that there was a voice of a great multitude in heaven, heaven saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be, a, granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So in chapter 19, of course, this is talking about Jesus Christ. And it says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of, and wrath of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. Now, just I'll stop there quickly. We know the beast represents the Antichrist. We saw that as we're studying in Revelation. And the false prophet was the one that was convincing everybody to follow the Antichrist, right? And it says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now, I'm not elaborating or expounding on all of that because I did last week on all those. I just wanted to kind of give you a summary there of what we read last week. But now, starting in chapter 20, uh, verse 1, again, keep in mind that tribulation period has come to an end. And John says here, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. 
Now, of course, we already read about the bottomless pit back when we studied chapter 9 several weeks ago. In chapter 9, we saw where the bottomless pit was opened at that time. And smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, it says. The smoke is described as being so thick that the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And we also studied in chapter 9 that there is an angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek his name is Apollyon. Okay? And the name Abaddon means destruction, and the name Apollyon means the destroyer. And we know, of course, who the king of destruction is, right? The one who comes to, to steal, to kill, and to destroy, Jesus said. Jesus said, I want to touch on this again here in a little bit probably, but Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. And that you might have life more abundantly, Jesus said. But he said, but the thief, he comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. So Satan is that destroyer, okay? So in here in chapter 20, we'll see that Satan's work is going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end for a period of a thousand years, okay? And notice here that this angel that has come to bind Satan, I just find it interesting that as we've seen angels named in the Bible, that this angel that comes to bind up Satan is not named. It's not God the Father. It's not Jesus Christ, the Son, doing this work. It's not even Michael or Gabriel. It's an unknown, unnamed angel. You see, what I find interesting about that is that Satan likes to think that he's something. He spends all of his time trying to get the attention of the people of this world and keep them distracted from a relationship with Jesus Christ, from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay? So Satan, I would call the greatest narcissist that the world has ever known, right? He's the father of all narcissists, right? And he does a very good job of getting most of the people of the world, even till this day, to be focused on him, really anything other than God, right? Jesus speaking of Satan in John chapter 10, and this is what I just quoted to you a minute ago, but it's in John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. But the vast majority of the people on the earth today love the things of the world and would rather seek after all the things of this world than to seek after God. When Jesus himself said that we are to seek first the kingdom of God, that, that should be our priority is seeking God first. Who is our creator? Who made all of this? And what importance does he have in our lives? He should have the utmost importance in our lives, right? Jesus came to give abundant life, but most people would rather have the things that Satan offers. But these are things that kill people, that steal from people, that rob from people, that ultimately destroy people because they go through life not knowing their God, not knowing the creator. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that even if our gospel is veiled, in other words, even if it's blind, it can't be seen by people. It says, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. 
So that's what Satan wants to do. Distract people from the glorious light of the gospel shining on them. Because the gospel changes people's lives from the inside out. This is a work of the Lord. It's not a work of a pastor. It's not the work of a church. It's not the work of a religion. It's the work of the Lord in a person's heart that the gospel comes into their lives and changes them. Okay? But the God of this age is what Satan is called here in the Bible. And he does all that he can to distract people from this knowledge. But in the end, he's not even worthy of God's attention. He's not even worthy of any angel to come. And an unknown angel will come and will bind Satan up for a thousand years. Okay? And verse 2 says of this angel, verse 2 here says, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So now here we get the idea of what this angel has come down to do during this period of time in Revelation that we're studying, right? But as we read on, the Apostle John is going to elaborate on this subject a little more for us here. And he says in verse 3, And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So the angel does a pretty thorough job here of binding Satan. He lays hold of Satan, seems to wrap him up in a chain. That's the picture we're getting. That's the symbolism we're getting in this. He casts him into the pit and he uses the, the key to, to seal the, the pit up. Satan will be there for a thousand years, but at the end of that thousand years, he will again be released for a little while, it says. We'll talk about that more, but let's read on. Verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Okay, now pause right there, because who is this they being spoken of here? When it says they sat on them, and judgment was continued to them, who are they? Who, who is it that sits on these thrones? thrones excuse me. Well, we're really not told here who they are. Is it the 24 elders that we studied about early on in Revelation that are around the throne of God? It could be, but should we speculate on that? I don't know, but here's what I do want to show you. I want you to mark this page and turn in your Bibles back to the left from where we are in Revelation and find the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And just to remind you, I'm asking the question, who is this they? Who are they talking about that are sitting on the thrones? Who can it be? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, starting in verse 1, this is the Apostle Paul, of course, writing to the believers that were in the city of Corinth. Okay? And he says, Dare any of you having a matter against another... Go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that you shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? 
So we get a little insight there in verse 2 into the fact that one day the saints, the believers in Jesus Christ, will judge the world. The born-again believers will one day sit in judgment seats and rule over the world with Jesus Christ. This time will come in the future. So, you know, is the Apostle Paul here possibly referring to what we see back in Revelation chapter 20? We don't really know. Uh, what I like to do is use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And you've heard me say I don't get dogmatic about anything. I believe there's so much that I don't know and so much that I just continue to grow in in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But when you use Scripture to interpret Scripture, that's the way you want to do it. And that's the way you want to come to what the, the truth is of what you're reading about. So we talked about this they in Revelation chapter 20 that we'll be judging. And I said, who are they? Well, I took you back here to say, could it possibly be the saints that Paul is talking about here that will be judging in the end. I believe it very well could be. But flipping back now to Revelation chapter 20, reading verse 4 again in Revelation 20, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed, committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and, he, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So the saints, the born-again believers in Jesus Christ, they're already in heaven with Jesus at this point. How did that happen? How do we know they're already in heaven? Again, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we can read about the rapture of the church. And I'm going to take you there here in just a little bit. But we see here that there will be others, though, that will also live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Talked about here in verse 4, right? And it is those that survived the Great Tribulation. Those that came to their senses, if you will, about the truth of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, though, they waited too long. They ignored the gospel message before the tribulation, and they did not escape via the rapture. So they had to go through the tribulation. But they stayed strong in their faith when they came to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. And they did not worship the beast, it says, or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And as a result, it says that they were beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. They were beheaded for that. Now this, of course, beheading. You know, I, I remember thinking 20 years ago, reading this and saying, nobody gets beheaded nowadays. How is this going to happen in the future? Nobody gets beheaded. Well, look at all the beheadings going on in the world today, right? So this is not very strange to us that these type of things will take place in the future. But only those that died in faith during the Great Tribulation will be alive during those thousand years. Verse 5 tells us about all the others that lived during the Tribulation and it says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. 
So the first resurrection is very plainly the resurrection of those that were beheaded for their witness to Jesus Christ and to the Word of God. These people, and these people only at this point in time that we're studying Revelation, these people only have been risen from the dead. And as it pertains again to what we're studying here in Revelation. Now, don't confuse this here, because there already has been one resurrection from the dead prior to this period of time. Now, I've already alluded to this passage of Scripture, but let's go look at it. Let's go look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And again, if you find one book in the New Testament there that starts with the letter T, you can find them all because they're all together. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's look down at verse 13. Now I want to remind you what I said. I said there was already a resurrection before this period of time being spoken of in Revelation. Okay? So verse 13 says, Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And of course, fallen asleep there is a term that just means they've died. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Okay? So he's speaking about believers in Jesus Christ that have died. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So very simply, when we die here on the earth, our bodies get put into the ground, and our souls go to be with the Lord. This is scripturally described as being absent from the body and present with the Lord, right? Our souls go to be with the Lord, but our bodies don't. Okay? We get put in a grave or whatever. So when Jesus descends from heaven, he will not at this time that Paul is speaking of here, he's not going to put his feet on the earth here. He will simply descend from heaven and when he does, he will bring with him the souls of the people that have died in him. Okay? For verse 15 says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So, just so we get the picture here, Let's say that today is the day of the rapture. And of course, we don't know when that is, but let's just say it was today. And Jesus descends from heaven today. We as modern day believers who are alive will by no means precede those who are asleep, Paul is saying. So in other words, our bodies are not going to get to heaven before their bodies. Again, their souls are already with the Lord. They've died. They're absent from the body. They're present with the Lord. And Jesus will descend from heaven, right? They will descend from heaven with Jesus. But their bodies will be reunited with their souls at that point before the rest of us are all caught up into the air to meet them, right? Now, this all happens very quickly, and we're going to look at that, right? So keep all of this in mind because we're going to come back here to 1 Thessalonians. So I can finish the thought, the reason I brought you here. But let's turn for a moment, mark this page now, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Back to the left from Thessalonians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's start reading down in verse 47. Okay. It says, the first man was of the earth. Okay, it's speaking of Adam here, right? Made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Paul's going to compare two people here, Jesus and Adam. As, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of the dust. So we're like Adam. We're all made in that we still have these bodies. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Okay? So again, the Apostle Paul is making a distinction here between the spiritual man and the natural man. Adam and you and me in these current bodies are what you would call the natural man. We were made from the dust and we will return to the dust if not raptured first. And even if we are raptured, this present body that we have right now will not enter heaven. This body that we're in right now will not enter heaven. And we'll see that as we go on. But let's read verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So we are, so we are going to be like Christ someday, having a spiritual body. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead, he had the ability to just show up in a room with all the doors shut. He had the ability to meet the guys on the road to Emmaus where they walked and then disappear from them. He had a spiritual body. And someday we will have that spiritual body. But this fleshly body, as we now know it, will not enter heaven. Verse 50 says, Now this I say, brethren, this is why I say this body will not enter heaven, okay? Because the Bible says here that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. You see, this body of ours is corruptible. We're all getting sick and dying and getting closer and closer to death. Plain facts of the matter. This body is not made to live for all eternity. We will get one someday, that is, but we don't have it now. So this is a corruptible body, and corruption does not inherit, inherit incorruption. And incorruption is in heaven. There's all kind of corruption here, we know. But incorruption is in heaven, okay? So verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. So Paul's saying we're not all going to die, but we shall be changed. So, so Paul's saying not everyone's going to die because there will be people that will be raptured, but we shall all be changed. Everyone's going to be changed. We have to be changed. Why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So how is this going to happen? Well, verse 52 says that it happens in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... And the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So that is what we're talking about back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is the order that it will happen in. First the dead in Christ will be raised, 
And then the alive in Christ will be changed to have a body like Christ, but it happens in a flash. It happens in the twinkling of an eye, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. As fast as you can blink your eye, that's how fast this is going to happen. And verse 53 says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? So you see, for those in Christ, death does not have the ultimate victory. Because if we die in Christ, our bodies will be raised and be joined with our souls. Also, we know if we die today in Christ, we're absent from the body and present with the Lord in our souls, right? But for those without Christ, those that like to follow in the ways of the world and, and are separated from this relationship with God because of sin, right? Their end is a whole different story altogether. But if we as born-again believers in Jesus Christ are alive at the time of the rapture, our bodies will be quickly changed and we will follow those that have died in Christ and will meet the Lord, not here on the earth at this time. This isn't the second coming of the Lord. We're going to meet the Lord in the air at this time, it says, okay, and we'll ever be with the Lord. Let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to finish this thought, the reason I brought you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Looking at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So you see the order there? The dead in Christ rise first. Then we who remain, if we're alive at the time of the rapture, then we're caught up to meet with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Again, there's that order, and it's hard for our minds to fathom that, but it happens like that, in the twinkling of an eye, right? We're told that in scriptures, right? Therefore, it says, comfort one another with these words. Now, aren't those words comforting? If you are a born-again believer, these words are comforting. If someone is not, these words would probably make them mad or make them upset. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Well, I'm nobody. I'm just reading the Word of God. I'm studying the Bible. And I'm seeing what it says about life and about death and about this life and about the next life, right? But what if I told you that as a born-again believer, you're going to have to live through the Great Tribulation and you're going to have to suffer great persecution, would those words be comforting? They're not comforting. Okay? But yet many say, we're going to live through the Great Tribulation. Okay? But Paul's saying, comfort one another with these words. What words? That we're going to be raptured. That we're going to be caught up. That we're going to be out of here and we're going to ever be with the Lord. Okay? So, but I said earlier that there was a previous resurrection. Okay? I went on a rabbit trail there, I know. But... And that is the resurrection of the dead in Christ at the time of the rapture. And that's the thought that I wanted to complete with you here.
The resurrection of the dead spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 is called the first resurrection because it is the first resurrection after the tribulation and it's the resurrection of those that have died because of their faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. And as we flip back now to Revelation chapter 20, those that have died for their faith during the tribulation will also rule along with the saints, with Christ, during the thousand years spoken of here. And verse 6 continues and says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. So pause briefly right here because at the start of verse 6 here, it confirms these people, if you will. Even though they lived through the tribulation, they fought the fight of faith, they stayed the course, and they are called blessed and holy. Even though they went through the tribulation. Even though they didn't receive Christ before the tribulation, they did during the tribulation, and they paid the price. They were beheaded for, for doing it, right? Now, well, of course we know it would have been better if they would have just repented and received during the during, during this life, receive Jesus Christ. If they would respond to the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. And that God was, through Jesus Christ, not condemning the world, but he sent his son so that the world would be saved. Just by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it's that simple to escape all that we see in Revelation as it pertains to the tribulation, as it pertains to that time that is coming in the future. Again, they could have been raptured and not gone through all of this, but they didn't. But during the tribulation, they stayed the course and they were beheaded. And verse 6 continues to speak of them and says, Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the seas. Now, this is pretty amazing here. Because even after Jesus Christ has ruled and reigned on the earth for a thousand years, Satan, the great dece deceiver, will still have the ability, after he again is released from the bottom, bottomless pit, he will still have the ability to deceive a multitude of people into following him. Right? He will deceive the nations again after that thousand years we see here. Jesus will be on the earth. The saints of the Lord you know, from, the, from, from before the tribulation and, and those saints that came out of the tribulation, they'll be ruling and reigning over the earth. There will be this great time of great peace and great safety because Jesus Christ is on the earth. And peace has come to the earth and Jesus Christ is ruling for that thousand years. But even after that thousand years, there will still be a large number of people that will again turn from the Lord and be deceived. By Satan, And it says that, the, that their number is as the sand of the sea, meaning there's a whole bunch of them. There's a whole bunch of people going to go in that way. That's amazing, isn't it? But verse 9 continues and says, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And what happened? And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. 
So we see here what it is that Satan and those that follow him after that thousand year period, right? We see what their target is. They're targeting the saints and the beloved city. Who are the saints? The people of God that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But what is the beloved city? The beloved city is Jerusalem. It always has been, always will be. Okay? And they will come to attack there. So the saints will be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, right, from the city of Jerusalem. Okay? That's where we see that here. So if you've never been to Jerusalem, don't worry, you'll be there someday. Okay? But old Satan and his followers have deceived people, and it doesn't last very long here. Because we're told in verse 9 there that fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So it didn't last very long. Verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So how long does the torment of hell last? How long does the torment of the lake of fire last? It says day and night, forever and and ever. You see, in our day and age, there are those that follow Satan. And I'm not talking about Satanist, okay? I'm talking about those that are deceived by the things of this world and just haven't surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. They follow the sex, the fornication, the drinking parties, and, and they just allow Satan to destroy their whole life with the things of this world, right? Because it starts out feeling good, starts out being good, but then ultimately it destroys because that's the way of Satan. He destroys, right? But people would rather chase after the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They want the money, they want the cars, they want the material things of this world more than they want holiness, more than they want righteousness, and more than they want godliness, they want the things of this world. But I've been there. I lived 21, the first 21 years of my life before I came to Jesus Christ. And I sought all those things in my teenage years and on up till I was 21. So we all fall short. We all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us is holy. No, not one of us. We only come to that place through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. Okay. But that choice is placed before us now. Okay. Now, of course, you know, yes, we do sin, but sin should not be something that we seek after, right? We may stumble, we may accidentally slip into some kind of sin now and then, but sin is not to be the norm for the born-again Christian. But for those that choose the lifestyle of sin, it is the norm, right? And it is those that have allowed for their eyes to be blinded by the God of this age. Why? Because they haven't opened their heart to the glorious light of the gospel, that it might shine on them. But Satan is a great deceiver. He's a, an amazing deceiver. Look how after, like I said, after this thousand years that Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the earth, he's still able to come and deceive people into forming a great army to fight against the saints and to fight against Jesus Christ. 
So that's how amazing he is as a deceiver. I give him his props on that. And he's been a deceiver from the beginning of time, from the Garden of Eden. That's where he came in as a deceiver, right? So many will live through the great tribulation and they will take the mark of the beast and they'll continue to live on. But the tribulation period will come to an end as we saw and Satan will be bound for a thousand years as, as we've seen. Jesus will come back to the earth, back to Jerusalem. He will bring with him at that time the saints that have been raptured. But those that lived through the tribulation and took the mark of the beast and worshiped the beast, they're still... They're, still, they're the ones that are probably going to turn and follow Satan during, at the end of that thousand years anyway, anyway, right? Many of them will once again be deceived by Satan. And their ultimate end will be to be cast into hell, the lake of fire. And forever, day and night, forever be tormented. And the solution is simple. The solution is so simple. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus. Acts chapter 2 verse 40 says, Be saved from this perverse generation. But sadly though, sin has hardened the hearts of many people. And they refuse to turn to Christ. It breaks my heart. you know, Because I know how Christ came into my life. And I know how lost I was. And people love this world. And Jesus said people love darkness rather than light, so they don't come to him. Okay? And then verse 11 continues and says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven had fled away. And there was found no, pla no place for them. So this great white throne here that Jesus sits on, is described as a place where no one can escape from. Okay? There, there, there's no place for them to run. No place for them to hide. Now, of course, the saints have already escaped this judgment. We've already escaped this white throne judgment. As a matter of fact, the saints, we already know, are ruling at this point in time, had already been ruling and reigning with Christ for that period of time, right? But there are all the other people of the earth that did not go into rapture that needed to be judged for their works. Those that have died and those that will be alive, right? They need to be judged for their works. Why are Christians not judged for their works? Because true Christians have repented of their dead works. They would have already come to the cross and they would have already found forgiveness for their dead works. Jesus paid the price for our sin by shedding his blood. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have come to him repentant. You will then begin to live, if you have truly received the grace of God, you'll then begin to live as Titus chapter 2 verse 12 says, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts and living soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. I'm always amazed how that verse of scripture in, second, in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 there is never quoted about grace like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. But that verse in Titus chapter 2 is straight to the point. It says that the grace of God that brings salvation. 
has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly now in this present age. Okay? So Christians that have been born again and have repented of their sin, they won't need their works judged because they've been forgiven of, their, of, of all their past works. And now they're living soberly and righteously in this present age. Okay? But everyone else, both living and dead, will need to be judged by this white throne judgment here is what we're speaking of right now. And verse 12 continues and says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Okay, so we see here that there is one set of books that has written in it every work that man and woman have ever done on the face of the earth. No one and no work will escape this judgment seat, the great white throne. It's all being written down, and it's all in these books. Okay? Keep this in mind. The born-again believer has had their sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ that he has shed. But everyone else, those sins are still written down. But there's another book open here. And it's called the book of life. And verse 13 continues and says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. So there are many people that have died in the sea. And their bones, however, you know, however much is left of them, may be at the bottom of the ocean. But the point again being made here is that no one escapes the judgment. That's what's being pointed out here. Whether you, the, the bodies are in the sea or whether wherever anybody's died, they're not escaping this judgment. That's the point here, right? They will be raised to sit before this white throne judgment seat where Jesus sits. Everyone that has died and their souls are in Hades today, they too will be brought before this judgment seat and be judged according to their works that are written in these books. Then verse 14 says, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So after this point, there will be no more death. And this place called Hades that presently holds the souls of those that have died without Christ, this place will also be cast into the lake of fire as well. You see, if you remember the story of the thieves that were on the cross on either side of Jesus, right? One was unrepentant and the other was repentant. The one that was repentant entered paradise that very day with Jesus Christ. His body went into the ground but his soul went with Jesus into heaven. But Jesus also describes in Luke chapter 16 a place where unrepentant people go. He describes a rich man that wanted someone just to give him a drop of water while he was in this place. But Jesus says that this man had his chance because he had the word of God. He had Moses. He had the prophets. He could have obeyed the word of God and he could have avoided that place of torment. That's what Jesus is pointing out there. And today, you and me and all of mankind, for that matter, has the word of God. 
And we can learn of Jesus Christ and we can turn to Jesus Christ and we can avoid the place of torment as well. And verse 15 here says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there are the books that have all the works of those that have not come to Christ written down in them. And there is the book of life with the name of those with the names of those that have come to Christ. Those in the book of life will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, and those not written in the book of life will someday be cast into the lake of fire. But I want to show you something before we close in prayer this morning. And, uh, and that is that those not written in the book of life, uh, I want to talk about those not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Okay? Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Here in Matthew chapter 25, we see Jesus describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what the whole chapter is about. Jesus is describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. What he's really doing is describing the type of people that will be in the kingdom of heaven. We won't read the whole chapter, but... I just really want to point out one thing to you here. So let's look down at verse 31, uh, 41. So Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So this is what I wanted to point out to you here. And that is that the lake of fire, this, this place of everlasting fire, is not prepared for people. God didn't make it that way. Heaven is prepared for people. The lake of fire that Jesus calls here everlasting fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. God is not willing that anyone would go into the lake of fire. God is not willing that anyone would perish. That's why he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that people would repent of their sin and turn and receive eternal life and spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. This is why he gave his only begotten son. And the time is drawing nearer and nearer when we will either be raptured or People will go through the great tribulation. Of course, we know that we may die before the rapture and our bodies will be put into a grave, but our souls will go to, to heaven, right? But that time is drawing nearer and nearer where the rapture is going to happen, okay? And for the people that won't go in that rapture, the time of the great tribulation is drawing nearer and nearer. And that's why today is the day of salvation. Now is the time for a person to repent and turn to Jesus Christ, but how can they, Romans says, unless they hear? What do they need to hear? They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are people all around us every day dying without Jesus Christ. And like I said, I was once one of them without Christ. So we need to see the Word of God, understand the truth of it, and if we believe in everything we just studied today, then we need to live like it. 
we need to make sure that we're living, first of all, soberly and righteously. We're living, we're denying ungodliness in this present age, but also that we're sharing the love of Christ with other people. So now is the time to make sure that our names are written in the book of life and that we're not going to stand before or sit before that white throne judgment that we talked about today. Because it is a fact that anyone not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. But that's not God's will. It was never prepared for them. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But people make a choice of heaven or hell. And they make that choice on this side of it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time. Lord God, in your word, Lord, your holy word, your living, active word, Lord. Lord, I pray that your word would not, I know that your word does not return void, Lord, but I pray that in our ears and in our hearts, your word would not return void, Lord. But we would take your word seriously as the truth that it is, and that we would desire, Lord, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to live for you, to acknowledge you in all of our ways, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to live soberly, to deny ungodliness in this present age, Lord. But Lord, we know that all of this is not by might, not by power, it's by your spirit, Lord. Because apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. But we can do all things through Christ which strengthens us. So we ask, Lord, that you would fill us anew with your power, that, Lord, we would not live lives that give an appearance of godliness but deny the power thereof, but rather, Lord, that we would walk being led by the power of your Holy Spirit. So pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord, is our prayer. And, Lord, give us eyes to see those that are around us that are hurting, Lord, that are being destroyed by Satan because their eyes have been blinded to the glorious light of the gospel. So let your truth be revealed in our hearts and through our tongues, Lord. And we just praise you and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.